0: Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you and I hope you enjoy. What is the definition of a companion of the Prophet? How would you define who a companion is?
1: The term companion um, in um, scholastic discourse refers to a Sahabi coming from suhba which linguistically means companionship or to accompany someone. Um, you'll find multiple definitions depending on the discipline of study that you explore. So from scholars of legal theory, Usuliyun to the scholars of hadith, to the scholars of theology, everyone seems to slightly differ on their definition of a companion. The accepted and you can say final definition among scholars of Hadith was a person who met the Messenger of Allah in a state of belief and passed away in a state of belief. So um, that would exclude people who may have met him when they didn't have Iman, or those who did have Iman, but they eventually apostated and they didn't pass away on that state. They don't limit it to any specific duration for them, even if they met him for a short amount of time, that would suffice. This is where some Usuliyun disagree. They say that in order for a companion to be dubbed a companion in the more uh, technical sense, you would have had to spend time with him uh, more frequently than just a mere uh, meeting or two.
0: And so is knowledge of these qualities available to hadith scholars when they're analyzing any narration? I mean... For example do we have narrations from companions who eventually left the religion do we know this information about them uh do we still trust what they said while they were muslim
1: this is a this is a very interesting question that you asked because dr mustafa al-adhami actually addresses this in his um introduction to imam muslim's kitab al he formulates the question as follows he says okay you're saying that all the companions are upright and reliable sources of knowledge. But you also accept the fact that among them, there were definitely hypocrites. So does it follow then that if someone was internally a hypocrite, yet he was a companion, he could have somehow passed a kind of test without being detected Kind of uh, unidentified as a hypocrite. And he answers this question very interestingly. He says, Number one, uh, Jamaluddin Al Mizzi, a famous scholar from Syria, he was the father in law of Ibn Kathir, the famous Mufassir. He says that if you studied the Hadith literature, you would figure out that there is not a single report from the hypocrites, meaning there's not a single hadith narrated by anyone who was accused of hypocrisy. So yes, theoretically you can argue that there were companions, among among the companions there were munafiqun, hypocrites, that we were unaware of, correct? And they narrated hadith and they secretly um, inserted hadith that were fabricated and false and we were unaware of it does that make sense that's kind of theoretically we can argue that but in practicality it's problematic for a number of reasons because number one as jamaluddin al Mizzi says anyone who was accused of hypocrisy at any point never narrated hadith or their hadith were not narrated but then that begs the question wait aren't hypocrites those who conceal their hypocrisy, then obviously they would have never been accused if they very um, expertly concealed their hypocrisy. The answer to that is, well, the hypocrites could have either been known in terms of their character or in person. So there were many people whom the Sahaba knew were hypocrites just by their... Lahn al as Allah subhanahu wa taala mentions in the Quran, by their behavior and their activities. And finally, we should also know that some of the companions were aware of and were um, in the loop regarding the names of the companion, uh, the hypocrites, such as al Yaman. So, putting all of that into consideration, we know that number one, no narrations have been transmitted from the. From those who have been accused of hypocrisy and even those who may have concealed it and we never knew about it at least they were not known by name but in you know in character or overall there were suspicions regarding whom they were so their transmissions were never
0: accepted does that make sense it it, i want to ask did the companions ever explicitly say to each other or to the prophet or to these companions themselves that we think you're a hypocrite? Because if, if they did, then then that would make sense because later generations would know from whom you can accept X, Y, and Z information. But if they didn't, and these companions who were hypocrites, and they never that information about their hypocrisy never was passed on, then that would mean that whatever narration that people were accepting from them was still considered acceptable.
1: So, like I said, in terms of who a hypocrite is, it depends largely not only on who they are, like being identified by name, but they also had character that would indicate that they were among the hypocrites. And Dr. Mustafa Adami argues that if you look at the narrators of hadith among the Sahaba you know, those Sahaba from whom we have hadith narrated, if you study their biographies, it is clear that they were not from among the hypocrites, nor did they um, possess any of the traits of the hypocrites. And this is not a difficult exercise because although the number of companions in total was large, you had perhaps, according to some narrations, over 100,000, which perhaps can be disputed. But in terms of those who narrated, according to al Zahabi, you only have roughly 2,500. 2,000 to 2,500. And among these transmitters, you only have a few hundred of them who transmit frequently and abundantly. Now you take that small pool of transmitters among the companions and you study their biographies and it becomes very clear that there was no reason to doubt that they were not, there's no reason to doubt that they were from the uh, hypocrites.
0: Thank you. That that, that makes sense. Um, moving on, I wanted to ask a bit more about the definition of a companion. What if you had some sort of, I don't know, a disability? Uh, either you were blind or or you were deaf, and you you maybe you met the prophet, you shook his hand, but would that somehow impact your the the level of sahaba that you were?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because, number one, Hafiz ibn Hajar in his um, primer on hadith nomenclature, Nuhbat fikr in the commentary, Nusrat al he explicitly uses the term laqiyah, that a companion is he who meets the Prophet So it incorporates those who may have had a defect, perhaps they were blind, such as Abdullah ibn Umm maktum He never saw the Prophet, but he met the Prophet But to answer your question specifically, look, in terms of the base requirement of someone being a companion, it is necessary to fulfill these criteria. But thereafter, the sky is the limit in terms of who is more uh, qualified or who is of a higher rank in terms of being a companion. So on the one hand, you have someone like, uh, Abu Bakr As-Siddiq عنه, as a companion and on the other hand you have someone like Wa'il ibn Hujr عنه, who came to visit the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam for some time both of them are companions there's no uh, dispute out, uh, about that among the scholars of hadith yet the rank of Abu Bakr As-Siddiq is definitely higher than that of Wa'il ibn Hujr although both of them share the mutual virtue of being a companion
0: Okay, and now that we have kind of the definition of a companion kind of set, I wanted to move on to, I guess, trying to conceptualize how information was transferred at that earlier period and what type of questions were being asked or if these questions were being asked. So would this, would the companions have mentioned everything, everything that they've asked to the Prophet to each other? Like how much exchange was there between themselves about information that they asked the Prophet in private, and then maybe someone else had a similar question, and then this companion would say, look, I asked the Prophet about this, this is what he said. Or perhaps there was a something that happened to a companion, and he asked the Prophet, but we just don't know. And of course, for things we don't know, we don't know, so there's really no point in mentioning them. Then. But I'm just wondering the type of, I guess, interactions the companions had with each other and the Prophet.
1: So, Sheikh Muhammad Awwama, in his book, Adab al he mentions something fascinating, where he says, could there have been things from the Prophet ﷺ that never reached us, yet was kind of pronounced by him? And the answer to that is, Allah mentions in the Qur'an, "Inna nahnu Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa Taala is going to preserve the remembrance. And some early predecessors explained that the hadith kind of falls under that in some capacity. So, If something the Prophet mentioned and was integral to our faith, our Islam, then that would have never been omitted because that would not allow for that verse to be fully implemented. That we're going to preserve the message. So if anything was absolutely essential. Fundamental in Islam, and the peace said it, Allah would have made a way for that to be transferred to subsequent generations because that's part of preserving the faith. If there were things which are, you know, secondary you know, um, maybe not fundamental. It's possible that they were transmitted. It's possible they were not. It's possible some people knew about it, other people didn't, because we kind kind of unearth information all the time that people before us may have not known. Now, if they did not know about it, yes, the excuse is that's not something that they needed to know. Anything they needed to know was definitely passed on, number one. Number two, in terms of the companions among themselves – Imam Al-Bukhari, in his Sahih, he actually has a chapter on At-Tanawb, where the Sahaba would take turns, because they were human beings, and some of them would go to work, they had businesses, they had uh, farms to tend to, they had uh, cattle, they had so many responsibilities. So they couldn't attend the gatherings of the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, every day. So they would take turns. Umar, radiallahu anhu, and someone else would take turns. One day Umar, one day his companion, and they would uh, alternate But at night, they would meet together and kind of share and relay the information they learned that day. And lastly, there is a report from Anas, although al Haythani mentions there's some uh, potential weakness in the chain. But it's a report worth considering nonetheless, where he says that we, the companions, would go to the masjid for prayer. And after the prayer, we would sit together and revise the Qur'an and the hadith. So revising obviously serves multiple purposes. One would be so that they can solidify whatever they learned and not forget it. But at the same time, it facilitates those who may not have known about those hadith to finally learn them.
0: Okay, so in terms of conceptualizing their day-to-day lives, because that's important to know, like how they lived in their day-to-day lives, in order for us to interpret and reconcile the data that is hadith, that is later on understood to be hadith. And so... I mean, it seems like the the companions, they were very involved in these discussions about what the Prophet said um, and questions that they had, answers that they heard. They were very involved in kind of a lively exchange of information. Is that correct understanding?
1: Exactly, definitely. You have many um, instances where after the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi is mm-hmm. passing, you have companions narrating hadith and other companions um, critiquing them, saying that, look, you heard right, but you misunderstood. And they would respond, no, I didn't misunderstand. So they had this very um, healthy exchange. I mean, there's an entire book written by Badruddin Al-Zarkashi, a famous uh, scholar, uh, Usuli scholar, muhadith, um, who wrote a book, Al-Ijaba, Fee Mas Tadarakatuhu Aishatu Sahaba. Those uh, instances where our mother Aisha radiallahu anha Um, critique other companions in their transmission. So yes, they didn't only transmit, and that's the end of the story. Rather, they would transmit, and they would be involved in this uh, constant um, filtration process, exchange, critique, to make sure that they have the most pure version. Because this is, and Aisha Raghun says it very uh, beautifully, under the hadith of uh, the sin for someone who uh, wails over the deceased, someone who sobs and cries over the deceased. So she disagreed with a particular uh, version of a report, and she says, Look, la uh, anil That you do not narrate from those people who are liars. Right? You have not been lied to, and neither are you narrating from liars. I mean, the Sahaba were not lying. I disagree with this report because he says that it's possible that somebody saw something incorrectly or somebody heard something mistakenly. And that kind of ties into our broader discussion about the integrity of the companions.
0: And so, this is all taken into consideration when analyzing um, any given. Hadith, correct? It's not just like yeah. if it goes to the companion, it's set, there's no argument, it's good no, to
1: definitely. go. If you study if you study the early books of hadith, especially those which are more uh commentarial, like if you have uh like the mutah or the riwai of Shaybani of the Mutah you have al athar of Imam Tahawi, and you see the way they engage with these reports, they'll say, Look, this is a narration from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did such and such. Or this is a narration from Ibn Umar that the Prophet ﷺ did such and such. We accept his reliability, but we disagree with his interpretation. We disagree that the way he's narrating it is not corroborated. Our other companions disagree with him. So yes, we accept his reliability, but we disagree with his transmission in that Maybe he didn't hear it properly, or maybe he's interpreting it uh, incorrectly compared to other companions. This is, Imam Tuhawwiz Shahum Al-Athar is replete with examples of this nature.
0: Okay, and kind of moving on to the relationship the companions had with the Prophet. Did they ask him about everything? I mean, do we ever have examples of perhaps something in the Quran? Because we know that the companions read the Quran. I, perhaps not every single one of them memorized it, but certainly they had a relationship with the Quran. Now, is there? Do we ever have any situations where someone asked a companion what X verse in the Quran meant, and the companion didn't know? Now, if that situation does exist, what does that mean exactly? I mean, does it mean that the companion simply never? It never occurred to the companion to ask the Prophet what this meant? Um, or what are their- oh,
1: yeah. there? Yeah, there, there are multiple examples of where companions were asked questions, and they would say, "Wait, you know what? That never occurred to us during the life of the Prophet A good example of this is a particular question about inheritance that uh, somebody comes to Abdullah ibn, uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and he says, look, I need to know a, I need to know the inheritance of a particular family member. And he's like, look, I have nothing to offer to you from the Messenger of Allah. Give me a few weeks and I need to deliberate over this. And he deliberates over it. And then he mentions that I believe this should be the share. And then another companion stands up and he says, you know what, what you're saying is right because I attended one of the gatherings of the Prophet and that's exactly what he said. Well, we can say, wait, how come Abdullah ibn Mas'ud didn't know? Well, he was a human being. He had other responsibilities. Perhaps he never attended there. But this episode kind of explains how it's possible for, th- for some of them not to know what others did know. And they would correct one another in the process, or at least reaffirm one another in this case.
0: And and, and we know we have evidence of them correcting one another. And, oh, and- yes.
1: Plenty. There are plenty of examples of where... Somebody would correct uh, Abu Huraira, anhu, for instance, or somebody would uh, disagree with Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, or someone would disagree with the ruling of Umar. Anhu. That, that they had a very healthy uh, environment of uh, critiquing one another. Yes, they had a lot of respect. And yes, not every time they would accept one another's critique, but they were open to disagreeing, right? And, I mean, if you want, I can give you a number of examples, but you just have to open up any book of hadith. And you'll see enough instances where they disagreed with one another and they were open about their disagreement. Like there's a famous incident about how many al-Qa'at do you pray? Um, I believe uh, in Mina and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, he was praying behind Uthman and he disagreed on the number. And he says, look, I disagree with him, but just to avoid any confusion or disagreement, I'm going to pray the number of units that he's praying. So they disagreed, but they still had a healthy relationship.
0: I mean, we would also have examples where the companions in the lifetime of the Prophet himself might have disagreed, and then they would take whatever issue they had to the Prophet, correct?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You have that example of Umar radiallahu anhu who prays salah behind a companion uh, who recites in a different mode of recitation. And Umar is just um, infuriated. He's like, What are you reciting? This is not even the Quran. So he. Basically, drags him to the Prophet and he says, "Look, he's reciting like this, and I'm rec- and I've understood it to be very different." And then the Prophet says, "This, and you're both right." And that's, so that's one instance. There are many other instances where they would disagree, and they would come to resolve the disagreements again. There were normal disagreements, like they used to argue about land, they used to argue about um, access to water, they used to argue about money matters, financial issues. But there were even instances of uh, religious matters that they needed clarification or they disagreed with and they would come. Um, Yeah. Like if you check under the issue of the penalty for someone who commits adultery, that was an instance where somebody understood it in a particular way, and they come to the Prophet as and then they get clarification. So yeah, there are many um, instances of where um, they disagreed, and they would come to the Messenger of Allah for clarification.
0: And <clears throat> when when a companion went to the Prophet and he got a specific answer. Do we have any situations in where another prophet, I'm sorry, another companion went to the prophet, asked the same question and got a different answer, either because the time between the two was different or, or maybe there's a different circumstance. But does that occur in the hadith? Oh,
1: yeah, that occurs quite frequently. Like, for instance, if you look at hadith such as, uh, which actions are the best? Right, and you'll have one companion receiving one answer, and another companion receiving another answer. And the way he would, and the reason you find this disparity in answers is because he would answer them based on the con, context or circumstance, whatever was apparent to him at that time. And yeah, that's perfectly natural.
0: And um, this is uh, one of the last questions before we move on, but <clears throat> the companions. When they, for example, when when the companions, when we talk about the companions, we say that as as you mentioned earlier, the companions they would not intentionally lie about the prophet, but they it's not necessarily the case that they were, you know, sinless. They were not, um, yeah, they were not sinless. So it's possible then that the companions were mistaken, but whatever they were mistaken in. Through other checks that we have in the study of hadith and in maybe other narrations, whatever mistakes they had would somehow be reconciled.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, um, that's the point. Like, I feel what ends up happening is people uh, fall into this, like, non sequitur where they say that, okay, look, you're saying, all the companions are reliable. But the issue here is the companions have made sins. So if the companions uh, were engaged in sins, then they could not be uh, they couldn't collectively be reliable. But that, that does not, you know, one doesn't logically follow the other because when a person is adul or Adal, we're looking at the person's truthfulness. And when we're saying a person engages in sin or falls into a form of ma'asiyah, um, That's like a human weakness that doesn't necessarily involve the person lying. But to your question particularly about, look, they could have made mistakes. Do we have checks and balances to ensure that these mistakes were identified? Absolutely. And that's why you have instances of Aisha uh, radiallahu anha correcting others or later Tabi'un not accepting everything from the Sahaba or later scholars looking back and saying, look, this was an interpretive uh, kind of attempt by such and such Sahabi that we disagree with or this is what he or she assumed to have heard. Like there's a famous hadith of Umar radiallahu anhu with Fatima bint Qais about what is the, um, the accommodation and financial support due to a divorcee or someone whose uh, husband had passed away. And Umar radiallahu anhu says that, look, um, in this matter, be, I'm not fully going to accept Her narration because it's possible she forgot or it's possible she understood but I'm having some doubts not doubts about her reliability but doubts on whether she's retained she's retained the information accurately or not
0: okay and um, I'd like to move on I guess a bit more to actual hadith sciences now how exactly well what is reconciliation in uh, when, when when scholars talk about reconciling between contradictory Um, hadith and there are books written on this. Could you briefly just go over that?
1: So, with disagreements among the scholars in terms of the sequence, they have formulated a certain kind of agenda, a list, a set of things that they do when they're faced with ostensibly contradictory hadiths. So, for instance, you come across a hadith where the Prophet Sallallahu says, do not lie down while placing one leg over the other. That's one hadith that prohibits it. Then you'll find another hadith that describes the Prophet Sallallahu lying down and placing one leg over the other. Now this seems contradictory. One is saying don't do it, and one, he himself, is doing it. So now when faced with reports of this nature, they have a list of things that they do. Number one is they try to do jama' to harmonize and reconcile. Number two, they try to seek out naskh, uh, abrogation. Number three, they make tarjih, they prefer one over the other. And number four, they do waqf, they take a neutral, or uh, they suspend any uh, opinion regarding it. Now, um, I can get into each one of these, but it's important that I mentioned before I get into this that The sequence may differ according to some of the Hanafi scholars, for instance, when they are approached with contradictory hadiths, they begin by seeking out abrogation. But nonetheless, let's just try to understand it more broadly. The first step that they would do for someone like Imam al-Tahawi, for instance, is he would look at the two hadiths and he would say, is there a way we can reconcile between the contents of both hadiths? So for instance... You look at this hadith and you say that, okay, when the prophet said do not place one leg over the other, he was saying this in specific reference to those people who would do it in a way that their body would become exposed. So if you do it in a way where your body does not become exposed, you do not fall under this general prohibition. And I'm sorry, I just want
0: to ask that second part of knowing what the prophet meant by something. Where is that information yeah. coming from? From a different hadith?
1: Well, well, at times it's by by the presence of different hadiths or the way the companions understood it, right? That happens a lot. You will see that they practice in a particular, way, and then they explain that no, you've understood the hadith wrong. Well, this is what the hadith means. Imam Tahawi brings a number of examples of that. Or alternatively, is very interpretive. They kind of like you know roll up their sleeves and they start kind of uh, applying their own discretion to arrive at the best understanding. Does
0: that
1: make sense? Yeah. To to give you a a, a more uh, relevant example, something that perhaps uh, you and I may have uh, experienced some difficulty in understanding before, it's the famous hadith. I'm actually working on an article on this hadith. That's why I'm speaking about it. It's a hadith about the height of Adam, alayhi salam. It's a hadith that comes in Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, and a number of other major hadith collections. That the Messenger of Allah وسلم, says that Adam السلام, was created and his height was ذراعة, 60 cubits. And And he was uh, 60 cubits and his progeny slowly decreased in their height until they are in the state that uh, we are today. Now, um, a number of people have objected to this hadith saying that, look, this is not a a scenario of where two hadiths contradict one another, but this is a scenario where a hadith contradicts our understanding of the human anatomy. That biologically speaking, a number of people have argued that it's not possible for the human to have been uh 60 cubits now obviously there may be some debate about this and some biologists do disagree with it but i'm not an expert in the field that i can prefer one over the other but let's uh see this argument that you know what you uh this is scientifically unacceptable now the way some scholars have approached this hadith by reconciling it with um external realities with scientific realities is by Explaining it. So, someone like uh, Abdul Rahman Al-Muallimi, the recent scholar of hadith from Yemen, or Anwar Shah Al-Kashmiri from the subcontinent, a great scholar of hadith, they explained this hadith saying that if you look at the context of the hadith, it's clear that when he was 60 cubits, it's referring to when he was in? The heaven, before he descended on earth, before he came to the earth, he was 60 cubits. So the hadith isn't even talking about the height of humans on earth. It's talking about a very specific circumstance when Adam alayhi salam was 60 cubits and that was in heaven, which is completely plausible. When he came on earth, he was perhaps taller than ordinary, but he was within the scope of human height. The only objection to that explanation, however, is if you look at the hadith, the second part says But it shows that the his progeny began uh, decreasing in height thereafter. Well, the way you understand this hadith, uh, this part of the hadith, is That the height began decreasing basically means that in reference to his height in paradise, the height of his progeny Was much less. Again, I don't want to get into the specifics of this. I'm writing an article at the moment on it, and hopefully that will clarify the matter. But I just wanted to give a relevant example of how scholars look at a hadith, they see a potential objection, and then they give it an explanation to reconcile it. With either uh, other contradicting hadiths, which is a field known as muhtaliful hadith, or when it contradicts external realities, a field known as mushkilul hadith. Although both terms perhaps can be used interchangeably.
0: Okay. How would the Prophet himself check the knowledge of of his companions? For example, you said that one of the definitions of hadith was the the approval, the, the the tacit approval of the Prophet. Correct. Correct. so um would the prophet have explicitly corrected somebody when when he needed to or perhaps maybe another characterization of the prophet would suggest that the prophet because they were in a public gathering didn't say anything to the individual at that time and so other narrations other uh, companions who were there narrated that this companion did x in the presence of the prophet and he didn't the prophet didn't do anything but later on the prophet Because perhaps there's another hadith that says this is the character of the Prophet that he would correct people not in front of everybody or something like this. And so later on the Prophet would correct this individual and that individual didn't pass that information on. Now I mean of course the Prophet ﷺ he's he's a Prophet and he would know potential confusions. And so I mean what's, what's kind of in the personality of the Prophet or did he explicitly make it known when but can we trust that he explicitly made it known, whenever he was upset or didn't like something, or whenever he liked something, and so we can generally conclude then that if he didn't say anything, then it was also just okay.
1: Oh, definitely. Um, whenever he remains silent, we can take that as approval, because hadiths would say, "Do not, um, you know, at a correct." your brother in public, it's regarding things which are known to be wrong. So somebody spoke in the prayer. Everybody knows that that is wrong. So he would be very subtle in the way he would correct them. But if somebody did something incorrectly, he would immediately uh, direct the person towards how to improve. So somebody comes and prays, he would say, you know, go back and pray again. And then he would pray and he would say, no, go back and pray again. Or, for instance, somebody would say something, and the Prophet Wasallam would say, "Lo, no, what you said is wrong, or what you did is wrong." He would openly correct them if it was a matter that required public attention, particularly legal issues. But if it was something more um, generic, like everybody knows that um, you know uh, such and such thing was wrong, he may have done it uh, privately. But this idea of him remaining silent when something that needed to be known yet he remains silent about it and only tells one companion and we don't know about it. I feel that's extremely hypothetical. And even if that was the case, we wouldn't know about it because the companion didn't say it. But based on the fact that Allah wouldn't allow for anything important to have not reached this Ummah, obviously we as Muslims would believe that that would never be the case.
0: Okay, but I mean, based on other things you said, it seems kind of difficult to separate um, our belief in the authenticity of Hadith from um, our belief also in i guess what god would and wouldn't do for his people i mean it seems like you have kind of have to accept both um or accept one in order to fully accept the other
1: oh yeah the only issue is it can get a bit subjective some people can just um counter that by saying look who said you need um, the preservation of Islam in the form of hadiths. Obviously we vehemently disagree with that statement, but um, you would need to establish certain uh, uh, fundamentals before we pursue that line of um, argument, only because people would say the preservation of Islam doesn't necessarily entail this, I can suffice on the Qur'an. And people have made such claims, the alone, and they've come to some ridiculous conclusions about how many times you pray, how do you pray, do you even pray, which is a very strange way of, uh,
0: you know, practicing Islam. Understood. And I think we're going to discuss this a bit more later on. So let me just uh, finish up a couple more questions that I had on this um, subject. How can you tell the age of, a, of any particular uh, hadith? In the sense that at what point, not age, um, the time period in which any given narration was, you know, um, narrated? Um, if you have, you know, ex-companion saying this, how do you know what period in the in the Prophet's life this thing was being said? Is that relevant at all in the Hadith sciences?
1: Oh, it's very relevant, particularly when you want to seek out abrogation nasr. This is something scholars have been grappling with for some time. That when you have two contradictory Hadiths, how do we determine which Hadith was pronounced? first and which hadith came later so that we can determine which one is the nasikh, which one is abrogating and which one was abrogated so it's often difficult to determine the specific dates like okay it was on the 15th of ramadan on the fourth in the the fourth or fifth year after they migrated to medina that the prophet said this that isn't that isn't so important but in terms of like in reference to something else to know what came First, or what came second is very relevant to know what is the what they would call أمرين, the last of the two matters of the Prophet. ﷺ. And there's a way of doing this. Uh, one would be trying to uh, gather all the different routes of the hadith to see if there's some indication of, oh, while we were with the Prophet ﷺ on such and such campaign, okay, if he was on such and such campaign, now we've identified the year when he said it, and from there we can deduce that this was either later or earlier. Or we will see that, okay, majority of the companions are practicing on one as opposed to the other, then it seems that, okay, the other must have been abrogated, otherwise they wouldn't have continuously practiced on it. But um, I see what you're saying in terms of the age or the specific time a hadith was pronounced. There are ways, I mean, based on gathering all the routes of the hadith, but to know it for the sake of knowing it isn't that helpful. I mean in terms of the Quran, for instance, right, they have certain ways where they create a timeline of which verses were revealed in Mecca, which were revealed in Medina, based on like a linguistic analysis. So for instance, verses that say "Ya Uhannas or Kella, these tend to be revealed in Mecca as opposed to those that address Ahlul Kitab or those that address the Munafiqun. The hypocrites—they were revealed in Medina. So, based on a linguistic analysis, you can somewhat um, you can somewhat derive that information, and the same is kind of applicable to the hadith as well. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question.
0: But, but generally speaking, if, for example, we know a hadith was said pretty early on in the Prophet's life, um, can we can we say for sure that this hadith, the context in which it was said? because there's no other conflicting narration that this is going to apply for all time or because it was set so early um is there a possibility that another hadith was there which kind of abrogated this or qualified it which didn't make it i mean this I, that's, I, that's
1: that's exactly the field of fiqh right that's the famous exchange between al-a'mash and uh, qadi uh, Sorry, Al-Amash and Abu Hanifa, I believe, where he says, uh, that we, the scholars of hadith, our responsibility is uh, akin to that of the pharmacist. We just separate pills and we say this serves this purpose or that purpose. But you, fuqaha, are the you're the physicians. You know how to apply it, when to apply it. So now, when you have all of these hadiths, whether there's a conflicting hadith, not a conflicting hadith. Now you're moving from the realm of isnad analysis to the met and the text and the fiqh of it. Which um, yeah, you had scholars who had different criteria for when it was applicable or when it was not applicable.
0: Understood. And how much overlap is there um, of the same hadith in different uh, in different uh, books? It overlap in the sense that how many times do we find the same? hadith mentioned in the six authentic books and is it the same narrator uh, normally who's saying this uh, hadith or is it a different narrator and how often do the companions narrate different companions narrate the same hadith and I think I asked this earlier but I was just wondering in terms of I guess how often it occurs
1: so if you take the hadith of the six books and you take out repetitions, there will be quite a few, right? And like we don't even need to look at just... It's, it's interesting, though, right? Because in the field of hadith, if you have two companions narrating the same hadith, it's still regarded as different hadiths. Because... A different Sahabi automatically necessit- necessitates a different chain of transmission. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because if it's coming to a different companion, it's going to be a different. Um, it's going to be a different uh, chain of transmission. But this idea of avoiding repetitions is something that scholars have done. That's the whole field of zawaid. You have Nuruddin al-Haythami, early ninth-century scholar. He was the. Um, uh, I believe the son-in-law, or pro- he's the brother-in-law of the famous uh Zain al-Din al-Iraqi. So he has a number of uh, works where he, um, he, basically, he basically gathers. He will take the six books, for instance, and he will take out all those hadiths that are exclusive to other books, that are not found in those books. So I'll give you an example. I know that was a bit of a complicated definition, but to give um, to make this a bit more clear, he would take, for instance, something like the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, and he will take the Mu'jam, the three Mu'jams of Al tabarani in other books, and he will say, okay, in these collections, which Hadiths are found in the six books? So now let's say he'll say, if the, all together there are thirty thousand Hadith. 5,000 of them are found in the six books, just hypothetically. He will get rid of those 5,000 and he will only keep those hadiths exclusive to these uh, collections that he is gathering. So that's like a field of zawaib. So people have done this also for the six books. Like what are the hadiths that are specific to Sahih al-Bukhari uh, not found in the other collections, are specific to Sunan Ibn Majah. This is a famous one, the weakest of the six, Sunan Ibn Majah. You have a ninth century scholar whose name is Al-Busiri, Shihabuddin Al-Busiri. He uh, has a book called Misbah al and he says, okay, I'll take Sunan Ibn Majah and see which hadiths compared to the other five are specific only to Sunan Ibn Majah, and he will gather them. So, like that, people, scholars have uh, tried to uh, separate repetitions and try to find independent uh, chains of transmission in hadiths.
0: Okay, and so the reason I ask is because each one of these scholars who are compiling hadith, it's not like they're looking at you know the smart kid in class and kind of just copying off his um, uh, his notes and just you know and, and using it for his own homework, right? It's they're they're going about their own methodology they're going about their own journey and they're going about their own way finding their own hadith and so it would make sense that if for the sake of the hadith sciences that if they all are doing all these different things different methodologies in different areas talking to different people that you would see a lot of kind of the same hadith uh, being mentioned and that would kind of be in a sense evidence for the authentication for the authenticity of and reliability of these narrations i mean is my is my logic sound when i make this um uh when i when i say this
1: this is one of the main arguments against someone like joseph shah in that if you're saying these people are fabricating hadiths you would have to have an extremely cynical worldview right that an entire empire extending from like on the one side to the Maghrib-like uh, Istam- uh, uh, like places like Andalus, and on the other side going to like, Khorasan, such a vast empire, you have everyone collectively fabricating hadiths, you've got to be extremely cynical. Rather, these people are narrating hadith and corroborating each other independent of the other people. Right? So, yeah, and it makes sense. The fact that you have someone in Samarkand narrating hadith, the same hadith, and you have someone in uh, Qurtuba narrating that hadith as well is evidence of the fact that, look, it's not something just spontaneously fabricated, it does have some origin. And there's much more to that argument, but that should be enough, inshallah.
0: Okay. And when were collections of hadith, like, I guess, stopped being collected?
1: There's a statement from uh, Al-Bayhaqi in his Manaqib al-Shafi'i where he says that listen if somebody comes today and says look I have a hadith that has not been preserved or recorded in any collection until this point now just to put this in context Bayhaqi was uh, pa- passed away in the mid 400s so you're talking about um, around the of around what 4 centuries after the messenger of Allah s.a.w. so this is like the 400s he says to the, he says, uh, to the situation, he says, look, if a person comes and says that I have a hadith that no collection has recorded yet, we will reject that hadith because by now all of the reliable hadith have been recorded. Recorded. If anybody tries, anybody makes an um, a claim that they have a unique hadith, we can't accept it because it's been so long that by now somebody would have recorded it. So we would say by uh, the 300s to the early 400s, by then all the major hadiths were uh, all the hadiths were compiled. Now, obviously, some of them were reliable, some of them were unreliable. I'll just add one point to that because you can sometimes find hadiths in later collections, such as Ibn Asakir's Tariq Dimashq. He passed away 571, about a century after Al-Bayhaqi. And you'll find some hadiths that are exclusively found in his tariq, in his collection of history. And now the question is, wait, so that means he is also finding hadiths that are unique, that were not found by people before him. But in order to understand how that happened, you need to realize that someone like Ibn Asakir isn't just narrating with live transmission direct isnad to the Prophet ﷺ. Rather, he is narrating through the medium of books somewhere in that line. So to give you an example, if Ibn Asakir narrates a hadith, sometimes he would narrate through Imam al-Bukhari to the Prophet ﷺ. So you have a collection of hadith in between. So if a hadith is found in a later collection, like Ibn Asakir's tarikh, for instance, then that does not mean that hadiths still were not uh, collected by the 6th century. Rather, as Al-Bayhaqi had already noted, by the 300s to, or the 400s, if you want to take a conservative estimate, they had already collected all the hadiths. Now, that doesn't mean the whole enterprise of hadith compilation or authorship came to an end. Rather, they just began exerting their efforts and channeling their efforts in other directions. So they would work with the existing body, write commentaries, indices, um, a mustadraq, supplementary work, and so on and so forth.
0: Okay. And along with the hadith, were there any other genres that had developed um, in support of hadith?
1: Um, if you mean by support as in like to um, authenticate, you have the whole field of ilm rijal um, uh, the science of narrator criticism, which is an independent study more related to history. So that was made in support of hadith. Then you have like mustalah al-hadith, the terminology of hadith. But if you mean like uh, parallel sciences like history, tariq, seerah, well, yeah, they have their own histories and they have their own... Um, kind of uh, progress and development.
0: Okay. And and when you say these um uh the 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 ilm rijal can you just go a bit more detail about that and its usefulness in in hadith sciences?
1: Yes, yeah, so, Ali uh, ibn al-Madini, he has a nice statement which kind of summarizes the utility of ilm al-rijal. He says, look, half of knowledge is to understand hadith the meaning of hadith and the other half of knowledge is to understand the transmitters of hadith. Basically saying that no matter how well you understood a hadith, if you can't determine whether or not the Prophet said it, then what use is it? Ilm al-Rijal, the science of narrator criticism, is basically an, uh, a, an unprecedented attempt by Muslim scholars to preserve the lives of those people who transmit hadiths from the Prophet wasallam in order to separate wheat from shad. So what do they do? They would study the lives of people, document it, and say such and such person is reliable, such and such person is unreliable. So now when people are beginning their journeys to collect hadith, great hadith, assess hadith, they would now um, look back and say that these hadiths would be reliable, unreliable, because that narrator is weak as documented in such and such place. But now the question is, okay, what was the process of determining the reliability are the weakness of a narrator. Um, there are multiple ways. Uh, there's a famous contemporary scholar, Ibrahim al he has a book on Al-Jarhaw al and he basically uh, speaks about multiple ways that uh, classical scholars would um, assess the reliability of transmitters. So one would be, let's go and observe their lives. So you have someone like Yahya ibn Ma'in or Ahmed ibn Hambal, they would go to these narrators uh, stay with them for a few days and see whether the person is reliable or not. Another way would be to test the narrator, go and uh, examine whether he knows this stuff or not. But perhaps the most frequent frequent way of assessing the reliability of a transmitter was what they would call Sabrul Marwiyat. Al Muallimi actually says this was the most frequent way. What would they do? They would basically gather all the hadiths of a narrator who was perhaps not that no, well known and then compare it to the narrations of those who are well known and see does he correspond or does he concur with the narrations of those more famous people or does he disagree with them and based on that they would either reject him accept him or put him on a kind of level in between
0: okay and w- hadith methodology that same type of methodology, was it ever applied to seerah or or history?
1: So the issue of the relationship between um, seerah and hadith is somewhat contentious. Because I, I, classical scholars must have addressed it, but among Western scholars, they kind of delve into this quite deeply, right? So I'm not sure if you heard of Muhammad Qasim Zaman. You must have heard of Muhammad Qasim Zaman, right? Uh, he's written a number of works, more in like South Asian studies. But he has a nice paper where he studies marazi or seerah reports with um, the hadith collection. So for instance, you would take something like the Battle of Hudaybiyyah, the Battle of Badr, and the Battle of Tabuk, and then you would study it um, in books of Sirah like the Sirah of Ibn Ishaq or other places and then compare it to the way those same incidents were mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, Musannaf Abdul Razak and Musannaf Ibn Abi Shaybah, books of hadith. And he draws a number of conclusions but his main contention is that the two are completely different. They have been, they've developed, um, they developed um, separately. There's another scholar, contemporary uh, from I believe uh, Scotland, I believe he's from Scotland. His name is Andreas Gork. I'm, I hope I'm not butchering his last name, uh, but yeah, Andreas Gork, he argues that look, they were definitely separate fields and but there are ways that we can identify because a report in sira has very unique traits to it. It's much longer, it's a narrative. It's oftentimes concessions are taken in transmitting it as opposed to Hadith. It's very specific data. It's like very terse. The the level of authenticity and the way we accept it is very rigid. Um, So in brief, um, is Seerah detached from Hadith or not? Or uh, as, as some have argued, basically what Seerah is, you take the Hadith together and you collect it and you have this larger narrative. Um, it's, it's difficult to say, but it seems more so that they uh, they both developed as independent fields. Look, ultimately, it's all information about the Prophet Whether it's seerah, whether it's hadith, it's going back to the Prophet But they developed as independent genres insofar as their nomenclature, the main scholars involved, the criteria of acceptance. As far as these things are concerned... They were most definitely independent genres.
0: Okay, but is Sirah ever used to date Hadith, in the sense that you would think that ex Hadith is said in this, in this invi- in this type of time period, which we know about based on the general information we get from the Sirah.
1: Uh yeah, like so. For instance, uh, like I told you, right? Sometimes you'll have a Hadith that uh to give like a random example maybe Wasallam speaks about uh dates how much zakat do you have to give on dates and the way he took um uh, the the, the how, how he would calculate taxes or things from the jewish community right so for instance you'll have a hadith on that on that nature and then somebody would study seerah and say wait from the seerah we know that this should have happened after the battle of khaybar and the battle of khaybar happened in this year these are this is information that we derive from the sirah and we use it to date the hadith so yeah it happens but like i said um in if you if you want to talk about interdisciplinary studies and how like each field is connected to the other field well in that case nearly every field is connected like oftentimes you can date a hadith based on tafsir Like the verse of the Quran, Nabi SAW cites a verse of the Quran that we know that was Meccan, so kind of shows it was in Mecca or Medina or based on theology. So in that regard, all the fields are somewhat connected. Yes, some are more connected than others to one another.